Amen. Please open your Bibles to John 14, beginning with verse 1. If using the Pew Bible, the chapter begins on page 901. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. But where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be beloved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not a scorer, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before, it takes place, so that when it does take place, you will believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Triune God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have richly supplied us with yourself so that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. Be our teacher. Bring to our remembrance uh, your word as, and your promises as we consider this uh, glorious passage of Holy Scripture. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. A lot of change is taking place in our, um, in our nation right now. And uh, very little of the change is positive. In fact, most of the change is negative, extremely so. And uh, part of my saying this this morning is I'm a bit pessimistic um, about uh, things just kind of down in the dumps over this uh, shooting in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Many are wondering what will become of our nation and our society over the next several generations. Wondering how we'll survive uh, as we witness the trends that we are seeing. But I'm always reluctant to say that we are living in the worst of times. I look back over our relatively short history as a nation and I, I see a lot worse. In terms of the presence of evil, our nation uh, had made it legal to own slaves for a uh, portion of our large portion of our history. In terms of our nation being divided, which are many people are worried about today, uh, we had a bloody civil war where 620,000 soldiers were killed. 
all the other wars combined, World War One, World War Two, War of 1812, uh, Gulf Wars, Vietnam War, the total number of soldiers killed is 640,000. So almost half of all the soldiers that were killed in our nation's history were killed in the, the, the bloody Civil War. And this is not including civilians. In terms of world unrest, uh, we're greatly concerned about that today. But we had, in the previous century, two world wars within the space of 40 years of each other. In terms of military threats to our nation, Soviet communism was a far greater threat than any foreign threat we currently face, ISIS included. In terms of economic uncertainty, which again, there's a lot of that out there as well, uh, presently in our nation and in our world. Our nation suffered through the Great Depression as it was sandwiched between the First World War and the Second World War. In terms of racial unrest, you know, I, was on, I was less than one years old when Martin Luther King was assassinated. But I wonder how we were able to survive as a country and how we did not let that um, terrible uh, evil uh, divide us. I think our greatest threat to our country presently, frankly, is our leadership. And I'm not singling out the president. I think there's enough uh, incompetence within our leadership to go around for both our political parties uh, to also be spread out to the media and to our intelligentsia. Um, that seems to me to be the greatest threat, the, the threat within. But the point I'm driving at has nothing to do with the future of our nation. Trouble has beset every generation in our nation. Trouble has beset every generation of every nation since the fall of Adam and Eve. We will never find peace in our soul if a peaceful society is the precondition for our own personal peace. Our only peace that is real peace comes from the triune God. And as I mentioned last week, as we were looking at uh, the first 11 verses of John chapter 14, the disciples were very stressed and troubled in their soul. And they were stressed and troubled because of the things that Jesus was telling them. Because remember, this is the evening before the crucifixion. And Jesus has been telling them plainly that He's going to leave. He is no longer going to be here. He's been telling them in the weeks building up that uh, He was going to die. And so the disciples are uh, very stressed and troubled in their souls. And so Jesus told them, John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. And so Jesus is telling them here in verse 1 that the God the Father and God the Son are teaming up to settle our troubled souls. 
What a concept. God double teams us so that we might have peace in our souls. What do we contribute to our soul's peace? If God is so active to give us peace, in other words, if God's God the Father and God the Son are working in our behalf, what do we contribute to our peace? We trust in Him. He said, believe in God, believe also in Me. Jesus speaks many times in this passage about the, His unity with the Father. And this is a difficult subject to explain intellectually, but Jesus went to such pains to, to explain it to His disciples that I think we should spend a few minutes considering what He was saying. So for instance, look at verse 7. In verse 7 He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. But He's saying that you've seen the Father by seeing Me. Of course, this uh, prompts the Philip's request in verse 8. Uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus responded, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And then jumping down to verse 20. Jesus said, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then finally, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so he's speaking about this close relationship that he has with the Father. In fact, what we're seeing here is Jesus talk about uh, his, his relationship with the Father within the concept of the Trinity. The disciples were slow to understand what Jesus was telling them very plainly. Uh, the, the disciples were steeped in Jewish monotheism, um, that God was one. And so Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. He's saying, when you see me, you see the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And the disciples could not wrap their, their minds around the fact that Jesus was telling them that He was equal with the Father. That by seeing Jesus, the disciples were seeing the Father. And then to add to their confusion, Jesus also was saying that He's completely submissive to the Father. If He's equal with the Father, why is it necessary that He be submissive? So how do we think about 
Christ calling Himself equal with the Father, yet submissive to Him. Christians through the ages have tried to offer formulas to explain these seemingly contradictory concepts. Typically, the formula has included aspects of Christ's deity that He would have had to have given up to empty Himself in order to join the human race, in order for Him to become human. It's common, unfortunately, for people to suggest that Jesus gave up part of His uh, deity in order to become human. Uh, So it's common for people to suggest that Jesus gave up His omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnipresence in order to become human. Uh, we We have that error actually reflected in one of our favorite hymns. Uh, in Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? It falls into this error. In the third stanza, it reads, He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite he, His grace. He emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. And uh, if you learn your theology by that hymn, it sounds as if Jesus is saying, I put aside my deity completely except for my infinite love to become a human. And that's not biblical. Our Trinity hymnal has corrected this error. Uh, The Trinity hymnal um, reads, And He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, humbled Himself, so great His love, and bled for all His chosen race. And so it's, uh, we recognize that there was an, an error in theology and have updated that. So next time you sing it, uh, you'll know when you see something and you go going, that's not how I learned it as a child. This is why we want to be theologically correct. God cannot give up His attributes and still be God. If Christ gave up His attributes of omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, then the Apostle Paul would not have been able to claim in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's a whole lot more we could say about this. Uh, I wanted to just touch on this because this is so important to Christ. It's so important that we understand um, the Trinity, we understand the dual nature of Christ, that Jesus fully God and fully man. And then we also need to understand that there are aspects of this that we simply will never know. Because this is the infinite God we are talking about. We can't fit Him into our pea brains. We are finite. By definition, there are things that we cannot fully grasp. Christ, fully God, fully man, He submits to His heavenly Father without giving up His deity. 
we could say a whole lot more about that and, and dig a little deeper there, but uh, I don't know if that would be as helpful uh, in a sermon, maybe in a Sunday school class. But uh, let me say, far from taking away from Christ's deity, the reason Jesus speaks so, um, so often about His submission to the Father it's what he what he's saying here is that his submission to the Father is a sign of his authority as the one sent from God. Now this is important, practically speaking, uh, in your everyday life, is you're going to have the knock at the door. And it's going to be the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they're going to try to show you, well, look, Jesus says He submitted to God. If He submitted to God, then He's not God Himself. Well, the passage and, and throughout the Gospel of John it is teaching the opposite. Jesus is saying, I am the one sent from God. I fully submit to Him. It does not take away in the slightest from His deity. It's a shame that the disciples could not grasp this. It would have been very comforting to their very troubled souls. God the Father and God the Son were double teaming for their peace. And they just couldn't get it. How often do we retreat into practical skepticism when difficult circumstances confront us? And we're like the disciples. We just don't get it. The, the, the circumstances overwhelm us. All we can see are the circumstances. And God's saying, I am double teaming for your, for your peace. Look beyond your circumstances. Cast your gaze on Me. And we'll see as we look at God, as we remember His promises, that these circumstances fit very easily within the palm of His hands. That our sovereign God has everything under control. That there is no time where our circumstances are so great that Jesus' um, command in John chapter 14, verse 1, is beyond us. In other words, there's nothing that is beyond His command where He says, do not be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. We so easily question whether God is with us or whether He cares. If God is for us, who can be against us? Trust Him. Trust Him. Jesus gave His uh, disciples encouragement to trust Him. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. What does this mean that we will do greater works than Jesus did? Does this mean that we'll do miracles that are greater than Jesus? 
think about it this way. Jesus preached for three years, three and a half years. And on the night before His crucifixion, He had only a handful of followers. And and most of those followers fled away uh, when He was betrayed. But on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were converted and added to the church. And the church has grown ever since. The church was basically a mustard seed when Jesus went to the cross. But now it's a great tree under which the nations of the world find shelter and shade. What happened between the upper room and the day of Pentecost? What happened was the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, by His death and by His resurrection and His exaltation, He won the victory for the church. And so the church now is ministering within the effects of Jesus' completed work. The greater works that we do, the greater conversions that we see, the greater growth of the church that has happened since His death and His resurrection is because of His death and His resurrection and because of His exaltation. He is at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. We should be optimistic about the ministry of God. We should be optimistic about the Gospel because it's the power of God. And so what Jesus is telling the disciples that His disciples should expect greater works than what He did on earth. Of course, we won't be doing the miracles that He did. But we should see His kingdom expand far beyond um, the ministry that He saw while here on earth. And then also, a second encouragement... In uh, verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you're troubled in your soul, whatever trouble is going on in your life right now, read this passage in light of that trouble. Ask. Whatever, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Jesus is telling the disciples that He's going to answer their prayers abundantly. Not only are they going to do abundant works, but they're also going to have abundant answered prayer. And again, we live on this side of the the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation. Jesus is at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. He has sent His Spirit to help us in our weak prayers, in our um, ignorant prayers. And I say ignorant because Romans chapter 8 says, we don't know what what we should pray, but the Holy Spirit who has searched the mind uh, of God has um, is working within us 
and teaching us and 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 helping us in prayer with with uh, groans that cannot even be uttered. He's helping us. And so we should expect abundant answered prayer because we're drawing from the finished work of Christ. Christ is the exalted Lord. He is our advocate. He loves to answer prayer. And He loves to answer prayer for the Father's glory. If you want to know a little bit more about that, that's going to be the subject of next week's sermon. So I'm going to backfill uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, verses 12 and 14 through 14. So He gives those two encouragements. And then He gives a whopping encouragement, if I may uh, speak of the Holy Spirit in those terms. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He promises them the Holy Spirit. In fact, He goes and and, uh, promises the Holy Spirit several more times here in this passage. But I want to pause right here on verse 17. Jesus says there's only two types of people in the world. People with the Spirit of God and people without the Spirit of God. He says the world cannot receive the Spirit of God because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. You have the Spirit of God. We read from Romans chapter 8 in our responsive reading earlier in the service. And uh, it made it very clear. The, the life in the flesh is death. Only true life is life in the Spirit. And then verses 18 through 23. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he will he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Again, I'm going to, this hopefully, uh, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll dive into this uh, in more detail. And then verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. God the Father and God the Son are double teaming us for for our peace and for His glory. But God is in heaven. How does His, how does His ministry come and, and happen in our life? How does He send us His help from heaven? He sends His Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave us as orphans. But the Holy Spirit comes 
and makes His home in our heart. And notice how it says here in the passage. It says, uh, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes and makes His home in our heart, the Father and the Son will also be there living in us as well. We have triune help from the Lord. And so... Um, I want to I want to wrap up here, but I want to uh, look at verse 26 and 27. He says, "But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you; my peace I give to you." That's how we started the the. the uh, the passage. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. He says, when you do this, what do you receive? You receive peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace. How does the world give peace? The world says, I wish you peace. That's about all they can do. Oh, I wish you well. But Jesus is saying He gives us real peace. And this is a promise. And so He says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why is it that we don't have this peace? He promises it. Why does it seem so elusive? So much of our restlessness and our uh, peacelessness comes from our desires being not set on God, but rather our desires being set on sin. Look at John 14, verse 15. Jesus says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Um, verse 24, Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. This person who does not love Jesus does not know Jesus certainly does not have His peace. What does Jesus mean when He says He, he gives us His peace? There are three types of peace that the Bible normally talks about. And they're all interrelated. I don't think you can really have have one without the first, certainly. And the first is peace with God. Uh, we were at war with God. And Jesus came and died on the cross to make peace between a holy God and sinful people. And so the first way of peace is vertical. The second issue of peace that Jesus gives us is horizontal. Peace between each other. We love one another. We're willing to forgive one another because Jesus has forgiven us. And then the third type of peace that the Bible promises to us is, is inner peace. But the inner peace is a personal peace. It's not like the mystics. This is peace that the Holy Spirit gives to us. When even in the middle of trouble, we can trust in God. Or how did it say in our responsive reading? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Jesus knows that suffering is going to come our way. But He says His peace is sufficient for every circumstance. The hindrance to our receiving that peace is our own sin. The way to that peace is repentance and faith. And He will certainly give us that peace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You that though we live in a very troubled world, though we know not what the future holds, we know that You are sufficient for our every need and for our every trouble, our every circumstance. Father, I thank You that You have given us Yourself to be our peace. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You live in our hearts. You dwell there. You make, our home, you make Your home in our hearts. Oh Lord, we have done nothing to deserve such kindness, such glory that You would dwell with us and that You would be concerned with us because so often we are concerned only with our sin. But You are so concerned that You love us and give us Your peace. Give us Your peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.